Hello and welcome to The Unseen Shows, a new podcast series by Visual Artists Ireland. My name is Joanne Laws and I'm Features Editor of the Visual Artists News Sheet. This podcast series features interviews with artists whose exhibitions have been either cancelled, postponed or sealed behind closed doors due to the closure of all cultural venues in March in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The continued absence of physical encounters with art in public spaces has prompted us to find other ways of communicating with artists about their work. We feel that the distinctive pace and sensibility of the audio format provides a welcome break from excessive screen time that many of us are experiencing during lockdown. Given that we are disseminating these podcasts without accompanying visuals or moving image, technically these exhibitions will remain unseen. However, we hope these conversations will illuminate in other ways, making visible the rich inquiries that underpin each artist's wider practice. The second podcast in this series features an interview with Neil Carroll, whose exhibition, In Pursuit of the Brock Inspector, opened at the RHA in February. I spoke to Neil in early May via Zoom, just before the scheduled closure of his show. We had the opportunity to meet in the RHA in early March while your exhibition was on there um, and it was still open to the public. Um, I think there's something really kind of monumental about, about the exhibition and it seems to have kind of a, quite an art historical presence in the RHA's colossal upper gallery. Um, it almost feels like some sort of formal retrospective um, so I wanted to really ask you uh, if you could describe your the shifts in your thinking when you began to consider working at such a large scale. Um, maybe even if you could um, discuss some of the pragmatic decisions that you made in terms of fabrication and how you were going to make the work, um, the space that you had available and, and the storage of the work afterwards. Yeah. Um all, all very, yeah, lots of things that were very much on the, the forefront of my mind um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the the first thing, you know, like I used to walk, I'd walk into the main space of the RHA and like anytime the walls weren't up, particularly when um, Neve O'Malley's show was up, I think it was <laughs> maybe the show just previous to mine or maybe just before the annual show. Um, and uh, I, I just just used to get a shock every time I saw the space because it was so big, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I I would just kind of wonder like what the hell could you do in this space, you know that that wouldn't I, I don't know that that because I suppose you always feel like you're subject to it rather than um, in any way able to control it or something. Mm-hmm. And so it was a massive consideration in that, you know, I was thinking along the lines of an installation the whole time. Uh, and, and I imagined the the gallery space almost like a landscape because it's so big. I was like, well, maybe I should just forget about the, the walls and just imagine this as if it's almost like a desert that you're walking into with this horizon that stretches out to infinity um and and somehow work with that as as an idea um that that you could have like a massive uh, landscape perspectival lines and stuff like that so i'd worked this whole thing out as an installation i built a model and i it all worked out and um 
And then when I started to make the actual installation and I, I was working in a, a cow shed, which was relatively big, but again, I realized that like, it just seemed a bit programmatic for me. And the way I work is usually very process based. And mm-hmm. I figured, well, you need some kind of program if you're going to work into a space that large, but at the same time, I, I, there was no surprises. So when I got about halfway through making the installation, I realized that a bunch of these things that I was making were actually needed to be kind of, I just wasn't happy with them. So I chopped them all up as I do. I kind of cut into them and start seeing different sections of things. And then they kind of came back together as, and I'd lay them out on the floor around me. And uh, I'd, I started seeing that they were, were essentially 2D paintings. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was kind of at that point, I, I flipped over into the idea of it being a painting show or like a wall-mounted wall mounted works. And um, and I was like, well, if the space is massive, well, why not just do huge works? Uh, it'll be maybe the one and only time in your life that you get a chance to do it. You know, I had the space to make the work. Um, but equally, what was to happen after that, like you say, storage and stuff, I, I, I essentially dis- decided to disregard that because I was like, well, I'll put on the best show I can. Um, and it's funny you say retrospective. It's almost like, you know, you do a show like that in Ireland and then you, you kind of realize, well, where, where can I go next? It's, it's, it is almost like a, a peak in the par- parabola of, uh, of your career, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's a weird, it's a weird time. And so I decided to disregard everything that was going to happen afterwards. Um, I wanted to ask you actually about the, the term in the, in the title, the broken spectra. Um, what does this actually refer to? Um, is it to do with kind of, uh, spectatorship and relations with, an observer or an audience, or maybe it's, maybe it suggests a kind of spiritual or mythological dimension in your practice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's funny, you know, the bro- well, the Brocken specter is a, is a meteorological phenomenon that you basically, you can see from time to time up the mountains mm-hmm. and it's, it, it's when you, if you go, uh, how do I explain it? So you, you go, you can, if you go up above the clouds sometimes, right? So yeah. low lying cloud on a mountain top, and you go above these clouds and the, if the sun is behind you, it throws your shadow out onto the kind of water vapor droplets of, uh, that are, uh, uh, below you on, on, when you're on the summit of a mountain and you see your shadow like flung out across these dro- droplets. It's, it's almost like a mirage or a hologram and around your head is like a pris- prism of, uh, you know, rainbow colors. Yeah. Um, so it's the, it's a kind of a phenomenon that it's a lot of, it, it's relatively rare to see it. And, um, if you go online, you'll see pictures of people who've, you know, taken photos of it and stuff, but it's this, I, for me, it was, Bill, I, I like, I like being up the mountains and a lot of the, the, the works that I made are, are kind of very much around that sense of mountainscapes or that, which is l- much larger than you. The thing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, like, 
I even think about land art from like the, the late sixties and stuff, uh, you know, Robert Smithson and people like that who, who kind of had this idea about leaving the gallery space and heading out back out into the landscape in order to, to kind of see things anew or whatever. So a lot of the works for me, and, and because they were kind of made down in that cow shed, it, it was very much about this like internal uh, searching or something mm-hmm. like as lame as that kind of sounds. But um so, so I guess the the idea of this, you're in pursuit of this Brock Inspector. You're, you're not. It's essentially it's a um, a mirage or something that doesn't actually exist. But to me, it was like the idea of the ideal self being being thrown out, uh, being projected out in front of you, and that you're, you know, you're kind of in in pursuance of this. Uh, of this mirage that you'll never ever achieve because even, even, even the idea of it, it, it's, it's a shadow of yourself, but it's, it's thrown onto a a water vapor screen. So even in that, it'll dissipate and evaporate over time. And so it's just like, like, yeah, I guess if you could maybe call it spiritual, but in a way it's a kind of a, a paradox and it's it's a it's a, a seeking of something that never actually that you think exists but but can't exist i suppose it's interesting that you reference the idea of mountains and and landscape and um there is a kind of tension in your work between like the abstract and the semi-figurative and and the idea there are kind of references to geology and rocks and cartography and satellite imagery um, and there's also a sense of um, urban architecture and graffiti and billboards and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to ask you, um, do you have any specific source imagery or subject matter when you're when you're making the work to begin with? Uh, yeah, yeah, de- definitely. I mean, I don't know how other people do it at all, but, but generally I've built up uh, several hundred images that I... I, I kind of just searched the internet. It used to be in books and you'd go and you'd photocopy in the library, just, you know, go find a book that you're interested in and flip it over and stick it in the photocopy machine and, and take loads of prints. So I have those, but then it became digitized, which was great. So you could just scan the uh, Google and, um, and literally I, I would just kind of go online and, and things that were in my mind, uh, like, I don't know, construction. And I just write that in and, and, you know, do these kind of random uh, image searches for things. But, but the, the, and they, or think of words like, um, you know, fracture or I don't know. So, so really thinking about, yeah, like you said, urban landscape versus a kind of geological landscape and thinking about the urban landscape almost in a geological time um you know okay. the idea of even the anthropocene and and this kind of new state of of geology that we're uh that we're uh, developing or or that humans are kind of uh bringing into into shape you know where the, through the compression of, of all of our rubbish and our detritus mm-hmm. of of the urban landscape so um I kind of uh, look at all those images and, and I'd like collect stacks of them as well as when I walk around the city, just taking photos. And nowadays, obviously it's on your phone, which is fantastic. And I'll just take stuff of like 
where road workers have kind of marked out where, where uh, sections of the road need to be cut out and they'd have numbers and lines and and then they'd kind of uh, cut it and I, I'd take images of that or like holes in the ground and things that like where, where the layers of history or something had been uh, exposed and the skin had been peeled away mm-hmm. and um, so, so all of those kind of ideas around like geological like the underpinnings of a structure and and how that kind of or uh yeah what what's lying under there and and then and then try to find images that i basically just jump out oh yeah that's it that's it that's it and just find images from wherever print them out and then literally i i literally just kind of spilled them out on the desk and you know you're kind of working in this process and somehow you're trying to think outside of language uh, and outside of logic, maybe, and trying to think in a much more, uh, I don't know, I'd like to say kind of subconscious, but I don't know if that's quite necessarily what I'm thinking. But anyway, um, yeah, so I'd see all these images and I just kind of use them as a, as almost like jumping off points into how to approach these things. But as you say, they could be anything from bare skeletal trees in the landscape to um, geological formations or, or like the side of a building that's like been torn down. So, yeah. So, I mean, I get the sense from, from your work and from what you're describing, the fabrication is very much kind of um, almost like a form of meditation in a way that you're kind of, making um using the making process to think through and process the world um and then also you work in a very physical way and you use kind of pouring and scraping and collaging cutting and dismantling older works um and you also tend to use materials that are readily available from like hardware shops or building suppliers like wood plaster household paint hessian wire um, and you could say that those materials are quite strongly associated with the sculptural tradition. Um, so I suppose I, uh, I wanted to ask, um, just in relation to when you're making and when you're kind of finalising works um, and you're transitioning the works to present them to a public, um, maybe there's a stage where you start to make aesthetic choices about composition and how the work will be realised. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose, like, like you say, the idea of the sculpture or the sculptural uh, painting or constructed paintings or constructed space, like they were ways for me to think about the idea of a 2D or of painting. I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of think back, like you're saying, in a kind of more meditative way about process and you're working through surfaces and um, and ways of thinking about space, spatial uh, relations. And and I say us as, as humans, as, as spatial kind of, we take up space in the world and what does that mean? And, you know, these types of things. So it kind of, it is a 3D thing in, in that, you know, your body is, is moves through space in, and you, you experience things as being three-dimensional. So, so I, I like kind of thinking about the painted space uh, in, a, in a much more 
yeah, some as if you can enter into this space and walk around and see things, and and then and then draw those objects out of out of that space and create these kind of uh, compositions. Um, and it, as you say, it kind of it's very much process, but then. At the same time, I am thinking about the history of, of art and particularly the history of painting. Um, and so, therefore, there is always an aestheticization at the end mm-hmm. um, where you you realize that essentially these things are going out to a, a viewing public or, or should go out to a viewing public. Uh, otherwise, you're, you are... They could circulate forever. And, and yeah, you might... You might learn, but but I feel like the learning needs to have a stop point maybe um, along the way. And that's what exhibitions become for me. These kind of, uh, you know, like, um, what do you call it? Like punctuations along mm-hmm. a, along the way, or maybe in a multilinear kind of way. You don't really know where they're going, but, but by having these punctuated stop points, um, I'm able to or reflect then later on at that time and and in that way I will kind of circulate the materials for a long time but but essentially I am I think at the back of my mind waiting for them to find their own sense of of formal composition and and sometimes it's in the circulation the moving of, around of all of these objects and sections and cutting and as you say all of that labor and sometimes I'll kind of just turn around in the studio and they're all lying on the ground and you'll just see oh like there it is like oh, the way these these pieces interconnect that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And, mm-hmm. and it also, it's like the research images. You turn around, you see it on the desk. You go, yes, yeah, it reflects what I'm seeing in those research images somehow. Like, they, it all connects. And then at that point, if I see that, I'll kind of take that out of there and I'll find a way to, to make it stick together because they're essentially like pieces of things. Uh, and, and then I'm like, well, how the hell do you bring it from the floor in the horizontal world into the vertical world? And, and that's mm-hmm. that kind of moving into into a more formal space in the vertical world, I suppose, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so they do become an aesthetic, slightly aestheticized after that. Cause I, but, but then at the same time, you're trying to maintain the process all the way to the end. So I started, I build a, you know, a support structure and I try to pin everything to it. But, mm-hmm. and, and then sometimes I kind of started to see it as almost like, it's like you can destroy things and destroy and destroy and wreck them until they speak to you and they say, and they, they find their, their kind of resting place. And then I'm gentle with them and I take them back and then I start to almost restore them and bring them back into some kind of, uh, final resting place, or that's the way it happened for the RHA anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the, the last question I wanted to ask you really was about the MFA that you did in the Ruskin School of Art in 2016. Um, and I, I suppose I was, I was kind of wondering, um, as John Ruskin was a prominent critic and a thinker of the Victorian era, and I was wondering if his values um, around environmentalism, sustainability and craft, whether these kind of values inform the the approaches to teaching and learning on the course? 
Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. Um because it's funny, like I guess Ruskin, John Ruskin and the idea of uh you know, even like you said, like the pre-Raphaelites or or this kind of romantic late romanticism, um, and you know, John William Turner and uh they are they was it John or Joseph? Anyway, um Turner, but they they were like massive kind of influences on me when I was, you know, a teenager. But then you also start to realize the context of their time and what they they came out of. But Ruskin, yeah, he was he seems to be in a really interesting character. And uh, but when I went to the to the Ruskin school, it's weird. It was very little to do with the idea of John Ruskin. It was. It was uh, an MFA, which was, and I had checked this beforehand. I was like, by the way, is this a, like a contemporary art program or are you still going back to those kind of... Uh, arts and crafts oh, kind of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The arts and crafts. Thing. And they, they did everything to, uh, to set, tell me that absolutely we are a contemporary art program. And, and the tutors they had on there... You know, like Lin- Lynette Yadamboache was on there. And in fairness, she is very craft-based and, and she kind of does um, hark back to those kind of, you know, the, the idea of painting as like Velasquez and mm-hmm. the kind of portrait and skill and and, and um, like painting bravura or whatever you call it. So, so, yeah, like, but weirdly, the undergrad course, they're absolutely in, still in that sense. They still do life drawing for the first, like, three years, like, and they're mm-hmm. really good. The students coming out of there, their their technical skills are incredible. But yeah. for me, that's not where I, why I was going there. I, I felt like I'd come through that hoop uh, on my own in my, through from my very early kind of teenage years where I used to read, like, you know, technical painting books all the time and how to, to glaze and how, you know, the, and you'd read like, uh, goat, goats, uh, um, essays on color theory and, you know, this type of stuff. So I was really into all that years ago, but, but I realized that for me, it's also about letting that go. But so, but like definitely craft is important to me, like mm-hmm. absolutely. But the MFA, was very much a contemporary art program, and that's why I went there. It was was because of that, and they were they were kind of flaunting it as like, um, you know, the, a brand new building, and it's a one year course, and they had all these amazing tutors. So I went on it for that reason, uh, mm-hmm. rather than John Ruskin. But it's funny when you mention him, I kind of started thinking back on on him, and yeah, he was quite an interesting character actually. Well, I just I was kind of thinking along the lines of um, the emphasis on on the natural landscape and also the yeah. the handmade and how maybe that kind of um, might inform your values as an artist. Yeah, definitely. I did it. It like I say, those values have always influenced my work. And Turner, uh, who John Ruskin was very um, close with. Uh, Turner was a massive influence that that kind of landscape work um, it w- like that's kind of where I come out of and I, I even think of like people like Huey O'Donoghue and mm-hmm. you know that his he had actually thinking back to his RHA show which was probably I don't know the mid late 
when he did those bog body kind of ones, uh, oil paintings, and they were massive. And I just remember seeing them and being completely blown away. So I feel like my work very much comes out of that type of, uh, yeah, sensitivity or whatever, technical um, and and craft based, and as you say, labor intensive, and you know, set into a kind of historical context in that way. So. But then on the other hand, it also has the urban and graffiti because I looked around all of that stuff. And for me, it's the urban landscape and this overlaying of uh, of several layers of of just people using the, the, the canvas of the street to express something. And that that really is interesting to me, too. So. Well, that's perfect. Um, I think I think we might finish up. Um, I wanted to thank you very much for your time um, and for giving really kind of rich insights into your work. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Joanne. Yeah, it's been a pleasure doing it. You have been listening to The Unseen Shows, a podcast series by Visual Artist Ireland. These podcast interviews have been published every two weeks on SoundCloud. Where possible, condensed versions of some of these interviews will be published in the Visual Artist Newsheet. Special thanks to our production editor, Christopher Steenson, for audio editing and the music for the podcast. <laughs>